Well, hello there. Thank you for inviting me into your eardrums. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. This is episode number 428 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. Today, Amanda and I are talking with Gretchen McCullough, author of Because Internet and host of the podcast Lingthusiasm. We are going to talk about her book, but also we're going to do one of those episodes where a really smart person with intricate knowledge of what's really going on beneath mundane activities goes deep nerdy diving with fangirling and squeeing and laughing. And this is a really fun episode, so I hope you enjoy it. We are going to talk about how the use of language as a tool for socializing is something that we're all currently redefining. And we're talking about how the way in which we socialize and the way in which we use language in social situations is changing too. This is a longer episode because we talk about so many things, but Amanda and I both really read and enjoyed Because Internet, and it was such a treat to talk to the author about this book. You can find Gretchen McCullough at her website, Gretchen McCullough, M-C-C-U-L-L-O-C-H.com, and her podcast is there too, which I heartily recommend. This episode was brought to you by Ritual, which is a daily multivitamin obsessively researched for women. It is vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, allergen-free, and all of the sources for the nine nutrients inside are provided for you to read and research on your own. I really like that Ritual pays attention to the details of what they're putting in their vitamin. For example, they use a vegan algal oil instead of fish oil, which is made using fermented microalgae and it leaves minimal environmental contamination. That's really cool. I also like that Ritual is easy. A new bottle shows up on the porch the minute I finish the old one. And I really like the fact that I know exactly what is in each capsule and why it's there. And the capsules are transparent, so they're really cool looking. Daily changes can lead to big results. So start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Try it out. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash Sarah. I have a compliment. I love doing these. All right. Oh, it makes my day to have a compliment in an episode. To Lee B., There are a thousand tiny things that you do that lift the moods of the people around you so much that everyone you meet feels better for having spent time with you. Thank you for being so great. If you would like a compliment of your very own, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Every pledge supports the show, keeps it going, and makes sure that every episode is accessible to everyone, and the Patreon community is full of fabulous and wonderful people. If you would like to have a have a look and join, it would be wonderful if you did. Patreon.com slash smartpitches. I will have links to all of the books that we talk about in this episode, and we start off by squeeing about a lot of romance, so, you know, get ready. And I will end the episode with a really bad joke, a really, really bad joke from one of our Patreon members. Thank you. So uh, stay tuned for that terrible, terrible moment. And if you have bad jokes that you want to tell me, and I know that you do, you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so please do drop an email. But I think it's time to get started with this interview, don't you? Let's do this. Amanda and I with Gretchen McCullough on with the podcast. Welcome, and thank you for doing this. Um, I was so excited when you started tweeting about how we were talking about your book. Like, 
I was like, oh my gosh, Gretchen Rowan knows who we are? Oh my God, maybe she'll come talk to us. So thank you for coming to talk to us about your cool ass book. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was very surreal because I, I have a friend who's a librarian who reads uh, Smart Pitches more more regularly than I do. And she sent me a link being like, Smart Pitches talked about your book. Like you have to see this. <laughs> it's really great. <gasps> oh, that's so cool. Well, it's like a little you. book club that Sarah and I had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we basically had a little book club about your book and now we're inviting you in. Yeah. That's, it's really great. Uh, yeah, I know. And I was, I was on recently because the new Courtney Milan book came out and I was like, I need to read some other people's thoughts about this, please. Did you read it already? Yes. Oh my God. It's so good. I read it the day it came out. Oh, and you liked it? Yes. I read all of her stuff. It's like, I, I really liked this one because it felt like um, kind of a return to form for some of her, uh, mm-hmm. I want to say like mid-stage books. Yeah, uh, like it kind of reminded me of the the Turner series where uh, she's kind of realizing that she can smash a bunch of tropes all in a row. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so being like, oh, you know, here are all these tropes. Watch me smash them, which like isn't quite as much what she's doing with the Brother Sinister series or with the the new one, the Worth one. But the mm-hmm. the Turner series, she's really taking glory and smashing the tropes. And so this felt like this sort of beautiful return to form for that. And I love when I do, when I did the interview with her and how she talked about how there's no bleak moment where all seems lost. It's just, we have things to work out and we're going to work them out. Yeah, and exactly. plenty. Well, and it's funny to me that she, she said this as a realization in that interview, which I listened to yesterday, um, which is because in the, um, I found that she already did this earlier in the Turner series where, especially in the book with Smite, um, He's like, there's this moment when, this is a spoiler, I guess, like a bad thing thing happens um, and the normal thing to do in a romance would be to not tell the other person about it and just keep this terrible secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead she just like tells him because obviously she trusts him more than this person who's sending her this threatening letter. Uh, and that to me was a sort of similar sort of trope smashing thing that let us get on with the actual story of the building trust between the characters. It's like she she revels in the ability to defy expectation, but yeah. then isn't isn't pugnacious about it. Right. It takes such joy in this defying expectation, not like, you know, like F you, this expectation is defied, but like what happened if we subvert this? Yeah. What if we don't? How about no? How about no? Yeah. <laughs> so to back up for just a moment, okay. since we jumped right into how great was this book, <laughs> Go we're going to talk about your book too, but we're also going to talk about lots of things. Okay. Um, would you please introduce yourself and tell the people who you are and all of the nifty, cool ass things you do? My name is Gretchen McCulloch. I am an internet linguist and the author of Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Uh, I also co-host Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I write a column about internet linguistics for Wired and do various other linguistics-y things on these here internets. Awesome. And apparently you also like Courtney Milan. What other romances are your, among your favorites? These, um, are the, these are the real questions here. <laughs> these are the real questions. So this is a, a this was an early lockdown book for me, which I don't know if it's typically shelved with romance, but it's really interesting. Um, have you read Tooth and Claw by Joe Walton? I have. Uh, it's so good. So for anybody who hasn't read it, it's a romance. It's like a, you know, Victorian sentimental novel, but all of the characters are dragons and they eat each other. Right. Like, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> I love anything having to do with dragons. Like, just stick a dragon on it. I'm in. 
And the it makes literal a lot of the stuff that's only implied in yes, you know, like in, in other types of genres of like oh well you know like the the women will be ruined if they spend a moment alone with the men and in in Tooth and Claw like they the, the dragons literally turn pink and that that ruins them, uh you know in this very sort of literal way that mm-hmm. you know subtext in the Victorian thing that is explained as some sort of like feature of you know. Uh, dragon biology or whatever this is. Um, so the interesting, interesting linguistic fact about Tooth and Claw. Um, so uh, I happen to know Jo Walton. She also lives in Montreal. Uh, and she was telling me this story about the translation, the Japanese translation for Tooth and Claw, which is there's some sort of, I don't speak Japanese, so there's some sort of linguistic feature in Japanese where you have like uh, categories for different types of uh like entities in the world and there's one for humans and there's one for monsters and uh what the japanese translator approached her for permission to do was can i use the like human category you know linguistic thing uh for the dragons in this book and for this other these other people who are implicitly like when they're described they're implicitly humans but they're they're external to the society of this can i use the monster uh (gasps) descriptor for them oh (laughs) <laughs> oh my and, and joe was obviously like oh my god of course you can i would have done this in english if i'd had the ability <laughs> that's so cool isn't that great that's amazing that's so good okay so please be a regular guest so we can talk about books please please because uh, <laughs> i know you have nothing else to do and you're not busy at all just you know, examining <laughs> i normally do like when i when i tweet about books i normally tweet about linguistic stuff in like sci-fi fantasy because there's often like oh here's this new world and like we've put some sort of uh you know thing in here uh but yeah like there's you know romance doesn't always do like here's a bunch of linguistic stuff to analyze Mm -hmm. um although okay that's not strictly true because i read um uh what is the book by helen huang um kiss quotient kiss quotient or is it the the next one the bride test the bride test what's the one where she comes over from the bride uh, test. The bride test. The bride okay. test. Yeah. So the bride test has all of these uh, really interesting uses of Vietnamese um, and Vietnamese like names for family members um, and names for like you like you. It's one of the languages where you like name people, uh, you like people in your life, even if they're not your literal sister or literal, you know, older brother or uncle or something. Uh, mm-hmm. But you use family relationships for them, and so. Um, Helen Huang very carefully like uses a couple of them in the book and sort of explains them for the reader who isn't necessarily a speaker of Vietnamese. Um, but of course, I'm on Wikipedia afterwards being like, okay, so <laughs> I feel like there's a bigger system here and I just want to look it up. Well, I mean, you, you can't dangle a language taxonomy in front of a linguist and expect them not to go down the wiki rabbit hole, right? Like, that's no, just not cool. No, that's cruel. <laughs> Have you read The Spymaster's Lady by Joanna Bourne? Oh, I had. It was years ago. One of the uh, things I loved about that book was that the heroine is speaking French, but it's written in English. However, the linguistic order of words is such that you can tell when she's speaking French and when she's speaking English, even though it's all written in English. Oh, neat. Okay, wait. Why do I not remember this? It kind of reminds me, so this isn't romance, but uh, it's really interesting. So the the books, the, the series that begins with Two Like the Lightning, um, by Ada Palmer, the Terragnota series. Um, mm-hmm. They do this interesting thing with the language terms where they use the quotation punctuation as a symbol for which language they're talking about. Oh. 
Um, so when the characters are speaking like Japanese, you get the Japanese like squ- angled square quotation marks. When they're speaking French, you have like the French triangular ones. Um, when they're speaking German, you have the like up and down German quotation marks. Um, oh my. Which was really great. And then really brilliantly, you have a character who mixes the languages. And so they put all of the, she puts all of the quotation marks at once. Oh, that's just sexy. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> so can I ask you about your book? Yes, you can. I mean, I don't, I don't actually want to. I just want you to tell me about romances and things that you've noticed in, ro- in linguistics inside romances. But I'm also deeply curious about your book because it was so interesting. Amanda and I talked about it several times. So first, what led you to writing this book? Well, so I spend a lot of time on the internet, as I think a lot of us do. And like a lot of linguists, I have a difficult time uh, turning the linguist part of my brain off, uh, which you may have noticed in the past 10 minutes. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm sitting there trying to do like, oh, this is some relaxing, you know, pleasure reading. Nope. <laughs> and then I'm on Wikipedia looking up like kinship systems. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and or I'm scrolling through Tumblr or Twitter or wherever. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder how people are using this emoji. Or like, I wonder what people are doing with this particular, you know, punctuation mark or this particular use of acronyms or this kind of stuff. Uh, and so I, you know, I can't help wanting to analyze it. The, the data will be sad if I don't analyze it. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for you, data doesn't want to be free. Data wants to be analyzed deeply. I, I deeply, I mean, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Um, and so, and especially it started with, uh, with an article that I wrote for the toast, uh, back in 2014, uh, I wrote a, an article analyzing the linguistics of the doge meme, um, which was, which was one of those, like, I've been scrolling through Tumblr and I keep seeing this and it's got some grammar here. Let me analyze it. Um, and, uh. Yeah, so and and I remember getting to that article and uh, getting to the second last paragraph of that article, where I started reflecting on internet language as existing across time. Because a lot of people who talk about internet language, they sort of conflate, you know, the LOLs and the BRBs and the like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, people writing emails in all caps, and it's shouting, with like what the kids are doing on the TikTok these days, if you will. <laughs> it's recognized the use of the TikTok is entirely ironic, and I know it's not called that. Um, and they see everything about the, the medium as if they're, they're parts of the same thing, when in fact you do have sort of different time-boundness. You have, you have different sorts of eras. You know, some people who use... You know, the earliest adopters of emoticons put noses in those smileys. Um, and you have a generation of people who don't put noses in their smileys. You have a generation of people who use emoji. And the generation of people who use emoji is not just the youngest group. It's also the sort of their parent age who never used emoticons in the first place. And there are two different ages who are doing it. And so I wanted to think about internet language not just as a thing that is kind of dictated by uh, its use as like oh it's on it's on a computer so it's all it's all internet language but it's a thing that exists in sort of time and space that's different across different eras of the internet that's different depending on your experience with particular subcommunities in the internet um and that has changed and that is also part of a larger context uh with things like uh letter writing uh, and postcards and other types of informal written communication diaries uh 
it's it's part of a spectrum and it's part of a larger ecosystem that didn't just sort of like burst into being uh, when they invented AOL or something. <laughs> I was explaining to my almost 15 year old what AOL was. <laughs> so first of all, I felt really old. And in terms of the um, the the geographic layers of the internet, I am old internet. Um, I am <laughs> yeah. 45. I remember Usenet. I hadn't thought about Usenet until you started talking about it. And then I remembered how often I scared the absolute poodle out of myself reading alt.tv <laughs> x files slash ghost stories slash really don't read this, Sarah. You really shouldn't read this one. But I did for hours anyway. Um, well, so I had to explain to him like AOL. So first of all, you used your phone, but it was the phone that was connected by a cable into the wall because not everyone had a cell phone and you could only connect. And this is what it sounded like. He's like, oh, that was a real sound. I thought that was a meme. <laughs> oh, my God. That's beautiful. I yeah. thought that was a meme. Um, my grandparents had a car phone. Oh, bless. <laughs> like free cell phones. They had a car phone. Um but the, the thing that I was going to say is I had various beta readers for Because Internet and early readers. Uh, and one of them commented, like, hey, you need to explain what Snapchat is. Uh, like, the book, was <laughs> before, the book was written before TikTok. I, I'm sorry, there is there is one reference to TikTok in the paperback edition that I shoehorned in very, uh, very belatedly. It's not in the hardcover. <laughs> but I, got, I, I changed one sentence to mention TikTok in the paperback. Um, but the book was literally just written before TikTok was a thing. Um, and uh, I had one one reader say, you need to explain what Snapchat is. Not everyone knows what Snapchat is. And then I had another reader say, what is Usenet? I've never heard of it. It sounds very corporate. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So it's, and this is a real, this was a big challenge that I had with because internet was figuring out what do I need to explain to people and what should I assume that they know? Because it's obviously, it's really condescending to explain to someone, uh, you know, in the year of our internet, 2020, or even, you know, 2018 or 19 or whatever, what Facebook is, right? Like, no yeah. one needs to say social media site Facebook, <laughs> where you can make posts. Because even if you don't have Facebook, it's enough a part of the sort of cultural furniture that you would find it condescending to be explained what Facebook was. Right. But not everybody has Snapchat. Not everybody was on Usenet. So, like, which, which bit needs to be explained? And the thing that I found really helpful in thinking about this was thinking, one day this book is going to be a history book. That's just how the inevitable march of time happens, right? Right. Uh, and, and since I, you're talking about the internet, that's going to be in like 25 minutes, right? <laughs> right. It's going to be before it's even published. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, like TikTok existed in the time between when I had done copy edits and when the book came out. It's really Boy. surreal. <laughs> and I knew this was going to happen. I didn't know which platform, but I knew there was going to be something One that I was going to miss. Right. That's just how it goes. Um, but... I was reading books, and there's a book about internet linguistics that was that was published in 2001, um, which is you know very much sort of a history book at this time. It talks about muds and moos. If you were on any of those, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but you can read it now as a history book and say, oh, this must have been what it was like on muds and moos, even if that wasn't part of your experience. So for people who weren't uh, old internet people, um, mud stands for multi-user dungeon, and it was originally like a text-based way of playing kind of Dungeons and Dragons uh, on the internet. But mm -hmm. it was also used for other types of text-based role-playing games and then just other kinds of chat. Um, so, and, and this book has a whole chapter on them. Uh, and they were sort of this pivotal thing. Like a lot of the, I'm pretty sure we don't quite have textual evidence for it, but it seems very plausible to me that the thing that you do in online chat where you do like third-person self-narration, 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, where you write like size or goes and gets socks. Mm-hmm. Um, that is probably from MUDs because they were role playing and people would narrate their own actions in relation to the other players. Whoa. <laughs> so it's like a, it's like excavating a giant, a giant dinosaur bone, a linguistic like tibia. Right. And so what's interesting is that at some point someone's going to read Because Internet in like 2040 or whatever, and it's going to be in the same relationship with that present as me rereading this book from 2001. And so, but the the thing is, is like some of the things that get explained in, uh, in this book from, from 2001 are uh, you know, here's what a what a mud is, or here's what a moo is, and because modern readers, even though those existed at the time, mo- a lot of modern readers have never heard of them, right? And so it's useful to the reader of the future to have that explained. But readers of the future don't need to be explained what a website is. No. So if I'm thinking about readers in 20 years, readers in 20 years, even if Facebook is no longer a thing in 20 years, because who knows? Oh, please, yes, please, yes, yes, please, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> will have left enough of a cultural mark yes that readers of the future will still not need it explained or if they do feel like they need it explained in like a hundred years there'll be plenty of other books to explain it to them right it'll be at least enough of a cultural reference that we'll, you know we could talk about it like we talk about diphtheria and right or like you talk about like the telegraph or something even though people don't really right. send telegraphs you know people are aware that telegraphs were a thing right. uh, whereas like all of some of the intermediate steps between like telegraphs and other things like teletext yeah. <laughs> you know those didn't stick around as much but people in you know even though people don't send telegraphs they're aware that the telegraphs that it exists so right. thinking about writing for the reader of the future is like what is the reader of the future going to look back and know about 2019 already <laughs> and what is the reader of the future going to maybe have forgotten or not have learned about 2019 right. was a way of making me feel more comfortable explaining the things that needed to be explained. Right. Because one of the things you talk about in the book is that a lot of internet language is the idea that you know and you don't need it to be explained. Therefore, mm-hmm. you're fluent mm-hmm. and therefore you're in the club. Yeah. And, and that's sort of a feature of in-group vocabulary anywhere, right? Right. Exactly. You know, you're, you're reading something and you're saying, okay, here's, here's this thing that I understand uh, here's this thing that I that I know. I get these references. Like, if you hang out with a group of friends who've like been friends since college, and you're kind of wandering in, uh, and they're like, "Oh, you know, like, you know, I'm just gonna do a mic, ha 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 ha," and you're like, "What is, what is doing a mic, right?" But they all know this because like Mike did this thing like ten years ago, and it's now part of the lore. Yeah. So it's not so much that it's like the internet is the only place where in jokes happen. Because I think when you phrase it like that, it sounds pretty patently absurd. But it's a place where in-jokes happen in text and in recorded formats. Yes. Uh, And that's interesting because we're used to in-jokes happening in the sort of physical medium uh, of whether that's speech or or sign, like the sort of IRL interactions. We're used to in-jokes happening in those formats, in the evanescent formats. But the idea of in-jokes getting like preserved and set down, I mean, that being said, um, there are Shakespeare plays which, like, we don't even get because they have so many in-jokes from, like, Elizabethan England. Like, <laughs> Love's Labor's Lost, I am told by people who know this better than me, is just crammed with in-jokes that people at the time thought were hilarious, and we just don't understand now. Sort of like watching Austin Powers, the first one. 
yeah or like yeah or like try to watch like i don't know monty python or something without all of the references to like what it's supposed to be right yeah absolutely so you wrote thinking about what someone would need to know about the internet in 2019 as the sort of location of language at the time you were writing right because it's inevitably going to become a history book and i need to just embrace that right um, yeah absolutely and even though you know it's first however many you know, thousand or whatever readers are going to be people in the present. Eventually, hopefully, it ends up on a dusty library shelf somewhere, gets forgotten about for 40 years, and some kid picks it up, right? right. Like, that's the dream. That's everybody's goal. <laughs> and so it needs to be accessible to a kid who picks it up from a library shelf in 20 years. Right. Uh, and that also made it easier to write for uh, a larger audience in the present, because one of the brilliant things, and I'm going to sound like a, you know... <laughs> You know, nineteen like a nineties like person, you know, raving about the internet information superhighway. One of the cool thing, coolest things about the internet, kids, is hypertext. <laughs> um, but the cool thing about hypertext, which like we forget because we do hypertext literally all the time now, is you don't have to explain everything because people can just click on a link. Um, and if you want to use a word and you're not sure people are going to know it, you can just link to the Wikipedia article or you can link to your previous blog post about it or whatever, and people can go find it for context, but people who already know the word don't have to go look it up and don't have to get interrupted because they don't need the context. That's really cool. <laughs> you can't do this on paper. No, you cannot. You have to relearn how to write without hypertext, and it was difficult. I get mad when I'm looking at a cookbook and I can't hit control F. Right, right. Like, right. damn it, where's the recipe for the chicken? Damn it, it's in here somewhere. the chicken in this page. Yeah. So what has the response to the book been like for you? What has your reader mail been like? I imagine it's very fun. The people love to tell me anecdotes about like things that their, you know, family members especially are doing online, whether it's their parents or their kids or different generations. Uh, it's really fun to get. Uh, you know, sort of tagged on on social media in these kinds of things. I'm I'm not good at reader email. Email goes into work brain for me, but social media is good. <laughs> um, the thing that's been most gratifying is hearing both from sort of more internetish people that are like, ah, this is a book that makes me feel really seen. Yeah, uh, and like somebody somebody's finally reading about the internet and they get it because. I know I've been really frustrated, you know, as, as somebody who grew up with, you know, all of the, oh, you're a digital native and therefore you must do everything in acronyms. And I was like, that's not quite true, though, guys. Um, no. those, the sort of weight of those bizarre cyber expectations. <laughs> um, and so to have people read it who, who think of themselves as internet people and be like, ah, this is a person who gets it. And then also to have people read it and be like, oh, now I get this thing that other people are doing. Uh, my friend's like 80 year old father picked up the book and was like, this is fascinating. I have, you know, it's such a world into this, it, you know, glimpse into this world that I never knew existed. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, I had like a 14 year old tag me on Twitter the other day being like, your book got me into linguistics. And now I listen to your podcast. And I want to go, I want to major in linguistics when I get old enough. Uh, and so I put a lot of thought into trying to write really for all ages and really for various levels of experience with the internet. And it's been incredibly gratifying to hear that that's actually succeeded because you never know. One thing is that when Gretchen mentioned whether people include noses in a smiley emoticon, one of the biggest arguments my brother and I have gotten into, I'm 31 and he is 26, mm -hmm. um, is whether to put a space between the eyes and the mouth in an emoticon. 
And which side are you on? I'm a spacer. My brother is not. He thinks it looks stupid if you put a space between like the colon and parentheses. And where did you, what, what kind of internet communities did you first hang out with when you were getting online? So I am a second wave. So like AIM, MSN. Um, and I feel like my brother falls in between uh, the third and fourth category. Um, he started with like Facebook, but I, he's more of a iMessage Instagram user, but he's a weird kid in general. <laughs> so he's definitely one that's kind of eschewed social media right now um, yeah. and doesn't use it at all, really. Um, but like that is one of our biggest disagreements of using emoticons and whether to put a space in between the eyes and mouth. We are definitely no nosers. That's no weird. No nosers. Um, the well, well, you're under forty, so I'm not surprised. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had I had somebody tell me that like uh, she stopped using a nose in her emoticon so that she could instantly appear ten years younger on the internet, and I was like, well, you know, you're not wrong. It, it'll probably work. Um, the although sometimes I lately found myself like tempted to insert the nose when I'm talking to like a certain type of person because I'm like maybe you'll like the nose and this will make it feel like it a just more... feels wrong it, it feels makes it feel, wrong it makes it feel more formal to me like oh I, I'll send this to you in a business email because it, it's got the nose in it so it's business like <laughs> <laughs> I don't do it normally that's how I feel about doing lol versus haha haha feels more like a formal <laughs> text laugh very than lol talk. it's a business laugh same thing uh, with like exclamation marks in email of like oh you know i don't know if i can i can quite bring myself to put a smiley in this email to you but i'll just put extra exclamation marks so that'll be kind of close enough right and then you like start going through like is this too many exclamation marks am i too excited in this email? you like want every other sentence <laughs> so i you partially answered this with like the the tiktok mention but because language is always evolving and changing I'm curious when you're working on this if there's anything that you just didn't have room for or you're writing and you're like shit if I knew about this like six months ago it would have made it in and now there's no going back and I just I'm curious if you could redo it if there's anything that you would really want to to include that didn't make it in this round what I have thought as I was writing the book was if they let me write another edition in like five or 10 years, there's totally going to be a chapter about video. But the research that I wanted to cite for the chapter that I wanted to hypothetically write about video hasn't been published yet. <laughs> it's like, I, I've been told, I, a few people have been, I, I say this every time somebody somebody asks me and every so often somebody be like, oh, I actually know like this one thing one person wrote about TikTok. Please send it to me. Um, and uh it, it, like because it's not just TikTok, and I I tried to be where possible um, relatively platform agnostic because so like this is also not a book about YouTube. YouTube has existed for a long time. It definitely existed. It was already a cultural feature when I was writing because internet. But I didn't write uh, a YouTube chapter. I didn't do a huge section about YouTube, uh, and I tried to be relatively platform agnostic and talk about online video because that was a way of sort of future proofing uh, the the book so that you can read stuff about online video and think does or does this not apply to TikTok in a way that's a little bit less uh, transparent if you're going to read read it and it says YouTube specifically and then you're like but what about TikTok and I'm like well thank you but it didn't exist <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
And there's so many more video specific mediums. Like, you know, Instagram has like their reels and boomerang. There was Vine, uh, TikTok. Yeah, and, and video was, was, I could see video coming. Um, you know, like Instagram stories, Snapchat, Snapchat was really kind of rose, rose and fell a bit as I was, as I was working on it. Um, but, and like Instagram stories with the short video clips, uh, were definitely a thing by the time I was writing and I was thinking, okay, you know, what's the next thing after images everywhere? Well, it looks like everyone has video capacity on their phones. I bet there's going to be more video. Like that was an easy thing to predict at a trivial level. It was difficult to predict the exact cultural space of TikTok in terms of like reshareable, remixable audio, which is, I think, one of the really interesting things that TikTok does is remixable audio and making video editing tools really easy. So it's easy to create audio and video memes. Um, so I think there's there's that half of things where, you know, what's going on with sort of video as a production format or as a posting format. And then there's the uh, second half of that, which is video as chat and video as streaming. So mm-hmm. things like Twitch, but also things like Zoom, which, you know, that's that's really like the book was already published when <laughs> Zoom became a thing. Um, but again, I tried to sort of future proof it by talking about video chat as a platform because, you know, like we don't know if Zoom is still going to be a thing in five years. Maybe we're all going to switch to Microsoft Teams or something. Um, the like Skype used to seem like a juggernaut and now people don't even use Skype as a verb as much anymore. Um, mm-hmm. The so but yeah, like I think there's been a lot of sort of advances in people using video chat for interesting ways and for more social situations in general. Um, And I did read some papers about like, you know, people using video chat because there are like Skype studies that existed uh, when I was writing about it, when I was writing because internet, but there just wasn't enough of a cohesive thing there looking at all of these different sorts of formats of video. Uh, like I need some dissertations here, people. <laughs> Please get on this. <laughs> you know, I somebody want somebody sort of... <laughs> needs to write that dissertation. Yeah, uh, you know, somebody writing like like inter like because there's a you know subfield of linguistics called conversation analysis, which analyzes well how we have conversations uh, and things like turn taking and things like holding the floor and interruptions and greetings and farewells and this type of stuff. And there's been a lot of conversational analysis on phone conversations because they're easy to record. <laughs> Um, and you don't have to deal with video because nobody gets video. Um, but it seems like, uh, and I expect that there are already conversation analysis grad students who are working on this. Uh, please get in touch with me if you're listening. Um, I would love to read your thesis. Um, and uh, who are doing things about, okay, well, how do you analyze turn-taking in a Zoom meeting? Or how do you oh. analyze uh, interruption in a video chat format where you have a bit of a time delay? Right? Uh, so there's that aspect of things. And then there's also um, one of the reasons why I didn't analyze YouTube in Because Internet, even though it totally existed, was because putting videos on YouTube. So A, the, the theses didn't quite, the dissertations that I wanted to cite didn't quite exist, uh, even though the videos existed. So I would have had to do it all as primary research myself, which is like I... I'm a public communicator and I do a certain amount of original research when I can, but I don't do all the research and I like to cite people. I like to tell people about other people's research that they're putting in academic journals and make it more accessible. Uh, (laughs) And I just don't have time to do a whole YouTube study. I'm sorry. It would involve watching like hours and hours of video and that's what grad school is for. Um, (laughs) But uh, because there are, there are a few kind of emergent linguistic properties of YouTube, things like YouTuber voice, Oh uh, yeah, or like the <laughs> the like editing subscribe style. and comment, <laughs> like smash that like button, <laughs> and also the sort of like 
high energy YouTuber voice, which I think of as like the like John and Hank Green, like, hey guys, today we're talking about this. <laughs> um, and uh, lots of little jump cuts and lots of little cuts and transitions in between stuff. And I think it'd be really interesting. And again, I haven't done this study. Some grad student needs to do this to say, okay, if we can get recordings of, for example, um, somebody who has a big YouTube channel, um, so you could maybe do the Green Brothers or something uh, and see how their voices change as they've been on YouTube for longer. Like, do they do they acquire a more stylized style or does them posting videos That's influence so other YouTubers for how they talk? Because I watch a lot of Let's Players and like streamers and some of them that I watch on YouTube, um, I'll start going back and watching their older videos if I run out of their current content. And mm-hmm. you can definitely see and hear the difference of their voices between when they first started their channel and now that they've kind of like settled into their own mm-hmm. personality. It's definitely a, a tonal change uh, and an uh, an excitement level change. And I wonder if you could you know compare somebody who does like streaming versus and they also do edited videos. Maybe they talk differently in them or if they also have a podcast, maybe they talk differently in the podcast compared to how they talk in their videos or something like this. Uh, I think there's, you know, longitudinal stuff. And then there's like maybe time-based stuff. Like do YouTubers from like, I don't know, 2005 to 2010 talk differently from like YouTubers from 2015 to 2020? You know, has there, have there been shifts in YouTube voice style? That's the kind of thing that like, if this study exists, someone please tell me about it. I haven't found it. I would love to read it. Um, But it would just involve like watching and coding hours and hours and hours of video. And that was not like, that would be a whole book. If if you're going to do that much work, you have to write a whole book about it. So that wasn't a study that I was going to do. But I think if there was a combination of this type of work on YouTube and maybe this type of work, like comparing YouTube and TikTok and, you know, Snapchat stories are really hard to analyze because they vanish. Instagram stories vanish. Um, So the great thing about TikTok is you can like download them. You can share them off platform. They don't vanish. Uh, It's really brilliant. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, like uh, and but a lot of TikTok is is repurposed narrative. Right. So the question is sort of what are you going to analyze linguistically? Uh, you know, because, you know, maybe somebody would do the study, but like what, what audio snippets make for a good TikTok excerpt? Uh, I know that like musicians are analyzing this now because they're trying to make songs that like have a TikTokable bit to them so that they can go viral on TikTok and then rack up the plays on Spotify. I've read some like musicians trying to analyze this, but I haven't read any linguists analyzing this yet. I bet there's something linguistic there too. Oh, Wow. One of the things I think that's so interesting about TikTok is that it does what Instagram sort of did regarding Photoshop. It makes editing and enhancing photos a lot easier. And TikTok makes editing and splicing and mixing video so much easier. You don't Mm -hmm. need this multi-thousand dollar piece of software. You can just do it on your phone. And I'm wondering, what's the next super difficult process that's going to be made easier by a viral viral social service or social network? What's the next thing that's going to be made super easy that's currently really complicated? That's that's a great question. Um, The like, I mean, so there are there are kind of platforms who are that are trying to hit that for podcasting. and I think they're kind of getting getting there. I don't know if everybody wants to have a podcast, um, but and so why not? Really, <laughs> I don't know. I have a podcast. It's fun. Well, with uh, <laughs> with Twitch, Sarah and I, we started our own Twitch channel for the site, 
And yes, I remember smart twitches because I'm oh terrible. my god, oh my so, god, that's beautiful. I love it. What what do you do on Twitch? Do you just read? We, pl- we play or? Stardew Valley together. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember like four years ago, I tried starting my own Twitch stream, and it was hard to figure out. You needed all this extra software um, and a lot of moving parts. But now Twitch has kind of streamlined the process. They have their own like studio platform that's in beta and you it's just like a program that you start and kind of like handles everything for you um so you don't have to download any extra software um which i thought was very helpful it's super easy sarah and i both use it with no problem but like that's really great the thing that i've been trying to figure out technically speaking and there are a bunch of platforms that are all sort of you know relatively nascent uh, and not there isn't like one that's taken off as like the one go to verb like zoom um you know a platform's a real platform when it becomes a verb um the <laughs> Uh, uh, but the the thing that I've been trying to sort of figure out is, and a lot of them have really taken off since you know the pandemic and lockdown and stuff, and everybody having to do so much digital hanging out uh, with, with through through screens, um, is sort of proximity based uh, audio platforms. Uh, because the problem with having like a Zoom cocktail hour is if you get like you know a dozen people and you have a bunch of drinks, you're still sort of having a meeting over drinks with a dozen people where you can have like two or three people chatting and everyone else is kind of sitting there being like, cheers. And then every so often you'll switch mm-hmm. who's talking. And that's kind of awkward because ordinarily, if you were hanging out with 12 of your nearest and dearest at a bar back when we went to bars, um, you would naturally splinter off into a couple smaller conversations. And sometimes you might kind of come back to the whole group. And sometimes you'd splinter off into just talking to the person next to you or the two or three Mm -hmm. people near you. And that sort of spontaneous joining and leaving of conversations is something that a straight up video platform doesn't do. Um, There are a couple platforms that our people have been experimenting with. Uh, One of them is gather town. Another one is rambly. Uh, There's a couple others. I can try to give you some links. Um, where you get a little avatar of some kind um, that moves around in a little space with other avatars. And when you get near people, you can see their video and you can hear their audio. And then when you walk away, when you walk your little like chibi away, <laughs> you stop hearing people and seeing people who, who are further away from you now. And uh, I've been experimenting with having like linguistics themed hangouts with them because like I miss being able to go to linguistics, linguistics conferences and interesting sort of conferences about stuff <laughs> and um you know like having having conversations uh with 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 people about linguistics at conferences um and uh and i especially miss the sort of hallway circuit like a lot of what conferences have been trying to replicate is like well we'll put the programming online people don't go actually go to conferences for the programming they think they're going for the programming but they go for the conversations that they're having in the hallway before and after the programming yes that was part of your book and i was like oh I loved that part at some of the conferences I've been to. Right. And a really good conference is like you attract the right people to the hallways. You can have the best hallway conversations that you wouldn't be able to have in your ordinary life, uh, which is really exciting. Whereas, you know, a a kind of boring conference is like, well, the talks were interesting, but everyone in the audience was kind of dull and nobody wanted to talk. Um, I've been to conferences where, and this was ages ago, people were reading the tweet stream, the hashtag for the conference. And if the mm-hmm. conference session that someone else was tweeting about seemed more interesting, you'd see people look at Twitter and just get up and leave. 
Amazing. Amazing. It was was like multiple layers of conversation all happening at the same time. And you're right. You don't go for the session. You also go for the conversation. And and that's one of the things that making sessions like pre-recorded and available everywhere, which it's nice because time zones are difficult and the world is inconveniently round. Um, But it's it also means people are watching it at any time. And so you don't have this sort of communal experience of everyone's tweeting this at once. Yeah. Um, so I went to, I digitally attended this year in, in May, uh, WizCon, which is a feminist science fiction fantasy con. Uh, and we were, I was on a spontaneous panel about linguistics and science fiction fantasy. So like linguistics plus X is kind of my thing. Um, and uh, they had a discord set up for the conference for the con. Um, and so they had all of these different discord channels and for, you know, all of the different events that were happening, people could hang out in the channel and sort of have a live tweet. Well, effectively like a tweet stream or like a live chat stream about what was going on during the panels Ooh, uh, and sort of hang smart. out that sort of And I think that worked really well for a certain kind of sub experience because not everybody has Twitter. Not everyone wants to tweet to the public about their reactions. You may just want to tweet to the other people at your conference. Um, and so doing that in a semi-private space like Discord kind of works. The thing that I didn't find Discord did as good of a job with was that thing where you like wander around the lobby and you see who you might wander into and have like a one-on-one conversation or a conversation with like two or three people because it was a huge, huge con. And so you could have these sort of focused conversations about topics with a sort of random assortment of 20 or a hundred people, but it was harder to have like, you know, one-on-one or like two and three person, five person conversations yeah, uh, to find that sort of group. And I think that that's something that the sort of gather town and other platforms like it, I don't know which one's going to win. I don't necessarily have, I'm not going to have shares in gather town or anything. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, like which which of those are are, are going to kind of accomplish being able to have like conversations with with multiple people and sort of the autonomy to enter and leave a conversation that is and isn't working for you? Well, one thing. So I also work at an independent bookstore, and one thing that the pandemic has really fucked with is just <laughs> uh, the feeling of like discovery and spontaneity yeah. of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like talking about a book that you love or, um, having someone come in and ask about a certain genre or like, even I, I do miss going to conferences cause there are certain people that I only see when I attend yearly conferences. Yeah. And there are certain people who like, there are your, your closer friends who you can like message and be like, Hey, let's hang out. And it's been fairly easy to stay in touch with those people with lockdown and not traveling anywhere because you can message them and be like, Hey, let's have a video call or like, Hey, let's, let's chat about this thing. Or you have a, you know, ongoing like text message thread or group chat or something, but exactly the people who you see like once or twice a year who are great. And you enjoy seeing them once or twice a year. You don't need to become BFFs with everybody who you enjoy seeing once or twice a year. Um, But how do you make space to see people in that sort of group setting? Um, And if you want to try to experiment with, uh, with some of these proximity based platforms, I think they're the closest thing we have at the moment. Um, I'm hoping to, depending on when this goes up, I'm, I'm still doing experiments on this via my Twitter um, and, and getting getting groups of people in things. Uh, but I'm hoping to write up something probably for Wired about what I've learned uh, with doing this to sort of, because I think it's a problem that a lot of people are having right now um, and trying to replicate that sort of hallway running into each other experience. So it's like not only not only trying to use technology to recreate and replicate a human behavior, but it's trying to use technology to create an opportunity for language that is usually only spoken. Well, and, and this is still a very speech-based thing, but like I see 
one of the things that I think is really interesting about internet linguistics is that the ways in which it can help us sort of untake for granted or de-take for granted um, a lot of the things that we're doing in, you know, face-to-face IRL conversations that we don't think about, uh, we, we don't, we don't, we, we just think about it all as one thing. Oh, oh, it's all conversation. But there, it turns out there are many different kinds of conversation, right? Uh, like there's the conversation where you, you know, make plans to meet up with a specific person and you have coffee together and, you know, it's an hour and then you're, you're gone. Um, and that is relatively well replicated by existing video calls because you can make that appointment and you can have that meeting. Right. Uh, and then there are other kinds of conversation, which is the sort of running into each other hallway type conversation, um, which aren't as well replicated by existing technology and thinking about how we differentiate between those and also b- about like parts of the way we interact with each other are technology, even when we don't think they are. So like a social gathering, say you're at a conference and there's like a cocktail reception on the first night. Right. Um, and at this reception, the cheese is a technology. <laughs> Please bear with me. You can use this as the title for this. Episode. <laughs> um, at this reception, listen, you're speaking Amanda's love language. She loves cheese. I've She's loved entirely cheese. on board for this metaphor. Like you don't know how appropriate. I this always is. say that it, like if I were lactose intolerant and I couldn't eat cheese, I would just throw myself into traffic and just <laughs> pack it up. We're done here. Um, they make some good lactose free cheeses now. Um, I don't want I don't want you to throw yourself into traffic. Okay, so <laughs> the cheese is like technology, and I mean this in an extremely literal sense. Um, from a social perspective, um, you know, like we think about, oh, you have to have snacks at a at a cocktail reception because people get hungry and we live in these like fragile human meat sacks, right? But the snacks actually serve a useful social function because if you show up at this, you know, like reception party wine and cheese uh, and you don't have anybody to talk to what do you do you go camp out by the cheese table or the you know fruit or you know veggie trays or you know drinks or like punch or whatever the reception that doesn't have to be specifically cheese you can be nuts instead um but you you go camp out by the metaphorical cheese by the literal cheese table which may or may not have literal cheese on it could have cake um and you you get some cheese and then you look for someone else who's also getting cheese uh, and you say, oh, look, we have cheese now. Isn't that And then great? you talk about the cheese. And then you talk about the cheese. And it's really important. And you can, and then you can transition into, so what are you doing at this conference? Or so, oh, how did you get here? How was your trip? Or any of these sorts of small talk conversations that we use to kind of get somewhere interesting. But the cheese serves this really useful social function, which is that it's, it's an obvious physical thing to do. And it can put you next to somebody who also has an obvious physical thing to do as a physical pretext for... Uh, doing this thing um, that enables you to have a conversation because you could go to a party where there was no food and no drink and people just hang out with each other. Um, but you would lose the ability to be like, Oh, I, I need, to, I'm going to stand by the cheese because I'm feeling awkward and I'm going to find somebody else to, to chat with. And when you're in the middle, like the whole point of a, of a cocktail reception is that you don't just talk with one person the whole time. Probably you might want to talk to multiple people and you might want to meet people. <laughs> and so if you're in the middle of a conversation and the conversation is getting maybe a little bit boring or you're just kind of restless or you're hungry or, or any of these reasons, you can say, Oh, I'm just going to go get some cheese now. And that's a perfectly socially acceptable reason to leave a conversation. It doesn't mean I hate you. You might run into them again and talk to them again. Um, but it's a perfectly socially acceptable reason to reset a conversation and run into somebody else on your way to the cheese table or on your way from the cheese table or at the cheese table or various things like that. Could, and, the, could the lack of cheese table also be technology? 
Well, but the, the, the interesting thing about doing these in virtual spaces, like the Gather Town experiment I did last weekend and like the other types of experiments is you don't have a built-in reason to leave a conversation. So you join a conversational group and you're like, okay, cool. And then when you leave, if you want to leave that conversational group, you have to be like, ha I'm just going to walk around a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can say at a party, but is a little bit less, uh, is a little bit more like, oh, I'm just leaving your conversation because you're kind of boring now. <laughs> then I'm just going to go get some cheese. My husband and I have joked so many times how much we'd like to be able to say, okay, well, this conversation isn't going to end itself. <laughs> because you, one of the things that I think happens, especially when you're so used to, for me anyway, when I'm used to communicating digitally through text, through Slack, through whatever, I get right to the point. There's no on-ramp or off-ramp. But when you're talking to somebody on the phone, there's the the, the conversational windup that happens over and, and it's over. Like, and it's like, okay, depend- I'm going to let you go. And then like 10 minutes later, you're still yeah. on the phone. Right. Yeah. yeah. This conversation isn't going to end itself. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this happens IRL as well. You know, you've all been like, okay, well, I'm, you know, you know, you stand up and then you like get your coat and then you have like a 10 minute conversation in the hallway by the door while you're holding your coat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that sometimes it's nice. But I, I think what you were saying, Sarah, about like conversations, um, cutting right to the point of digital conversations, sometimes we underestimate the useful things that digital conversations do bring to us, right? Because, oh, yeah. Like, if somebody just like starts a conversation with you, like, oh, they call you on the phone, or like, okay, who's calling me, number one? What do they want to talk about? How long is it going to take? You know, am I in the mood for this? Like, there's a lot of thoughts that have to go through your head if you decide, okay, am I going to pick this up? And like, maybe it's a 30 seconds of like, your package has arrived. And maybe it's like your grandma who wants to talk for like two hours. Uh, And you don't necessarily have the ability to know that before you pick up. And even with call display, maybe it's just a, you know, 30 second, like, oh, did you get the thing? And maybe it's somebody wants to talk to you for an hour. And being able to arrange conversations uh, in digital space or like in writing before they have to happen uh, can let you sort of say, oh, you want to catch up for two hours? Great. I'm free on Sunday afternoon. Um, yeah. And, and then you actually have time to enjoy that. It's not that a two-hour catch-up conversation isn't great, but you need to have the time and space for it. Um, and also, I find meeting people at conferences so much better since we have the internet and social media because you can arrive into meeting each other with an existing set of shared context. You know, if you've been following each other on Twitter for a year and then you finally meet at a conference, you're like, oh, so and so, like, who does the thing? Who likes these books and who does, likes this stuff? And you live here and you have these, you know, hobbies or whatever. You have such a cool job. And you can go right into this conversation of people who are already acquainted with each other. And you don't have to have the so nice cheese on this here cheese table. What do you do for work? Um, sort of small talk conversation. You can shortcut that with mm-hmm. the sort of combination of the technologically based conversation and the the physical conversation. And so to me it's a really interesting opportunity to be like okay, well, we that makes conversations better. Like I have people who are friends now who we wouldn't have been friends if we hadn't been able to stay in touch online in between meeting up with each other. Um yes. but that meeting up with each other was a useful sort of consolidation of that friendship and it took it to a different level than just like orbiting each other on Twitter for 3 years. Uh, and not having a conversation. So how can you mm-hmm. sort of facilitate that more uh, when we're not able to meet up? That's definitely something that I am struggling with as a parent because we have 100% virtual school through the end of January. Mm-hmm. So when you're like, what will take over Zoom? I, my first thought was nothing. Nothing will take over Zoom. Zoom <laughs> is my day. Zoom is my breakfast, my lunch, my dinner, my before bed, my early morning. Zoom is my everything at this time. And one of the problems that my my children are having who are in middle and high school is that 
the uh, the technological cheese plate is now completely gone. There is no social structure to any part of their day where they mm-hmm. randomly are assembled with other people and can have mm-hmm. meaningless conversations about randomness because they just happen to be sitting next to that person in class. All of that is gone. And there's a formality to the digital instruction with a chat room that's public. And he, he'll text with friends privately, but it's it's definitely not the same. Do your and kids it's play hard. like Fortnite or anything like that? They do. One of the things that has saved them is Minecraft. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're close enough in age that they play with each other. Mm-hmm. Like, they, like they're on separate computers on separate floors and I can hear them yelling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are really loud. Hello. <laughs> but the the random social assembly of like my, my older son articulated, I really miss going to lunch with my friends because we were just going to lunch and everyone had lunch at the same time. Yeah. And when you're 15, it can be really hard to be like, hey, let's all get together because the well, yeah, and like, preparation is already done. And the fun part about school for most kids is not like learning algebra. I mean, some Ew. people like learning algebra, but generally speaking, the thing that, that kids miss about school is seeing friends, which is yeah. you know, a very reasonable human social thing to need. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard when you're not an adult to set up the friendship opportunities. And, and you know, even if you could be like, and, and outside of school, the places where kids would also hang out, you know, whether that's sporting events or like other extracurricular activities, music and, mm-hmm. you know, theater and all of these sorts mm-hmm. of extracurricular activities, those are also canceled. So it's yeah, not there's like, no oh, breathing we can't together. go to school, but we can go to scouts. No, nope. it's like, okay, no breathing. Well, can't go to anything. Not to take everything back to because internet, but uh, reading, uh, no, please book, do. Um, <laughs> uh, reading this book, uh, Ray Oldenburg's The Great Good Place, which I cite there when I'm talking about third, third places. Um, and third places get this sort of weird uh, reputation because Starbucks sort of co-opted Oldenburg's language to talk about Starbucks as a third place. Starbucks is not a very good third place. No, um, it's not. It's, and his original definition of them is places where you can go to sort of formlessly hang out with people. Um, and so it, it could be a coffee shop if, if it's your local coffee shop and you recognize the other customers and the barista knows you and you you go in and you see people and you recognize them and you you have locals. Or it could be your local pub if you recognize people and you do that. Um, and the, one of the interesting things that that struck me when when Oldenburg points this out is that third spaces are often kind of shabby they're often yeah. kind of unloved you know like when i was a kid in high school it was like this group of friends has like this staircase or like this yeah. under this staircase yeah. or this corner beside these bleachers or like this table is our table and it's an unremarkable table and it's an unremarkable staircase you know uh or you have like maybe you have a community center and you have like a bunch of old timers, old men who get there and they play checkers or something like this. And it's like an ugly community center, but it's important for this particular group of people. And the parts like like th- or like you know back in back in the nineties or whatever, like teenagers going hanging out in like mall food courts or something like that, where it's like nobody else wants to hang out in a mall food court, but if it's important to you socially, it's you're you're there because of the people. Right. You're um, not going to go hang out at your house because, you know, parents, they're there. Well, or if you have like a community center that's like too fancy or yeah. a you know, public library that's too swanky, it can make you like or a, you know, fancy place where like you have to keep buying things to stay there uh, or where there's like too much adult supervision because they don't want you to break the chairs by leaning back on them like every teenager wants to. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, yes, like it's. It, it it impinges on your ability to really treat it as a third space if it's too fancy and there are people who are trying to like 
preserve its fanciness. Part of the, the charm and part of the utility to you is that no one else cares you're there. It's difficult to sort of reconcile that with the corporate nature of a lot of social networks. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that are really beloved as third places. You know, like LiveJournal was a third space for a lot of people. Um, e- even it though was kind shabby, of, wasn't it? Was <laughs> decay. It's, I mean, LiveJournal's ugly and has never tried to be anything but ugly. Oh, I was on Diary X and it was plain and shabby. I had a Zanga. Oh, yes, you did. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, And so like, and those, I don't know if any of those social networks ever made like money. No, like GeoCities was ugly on purpose. (laughs) But in some senses, the ugliness keeps, and I'm thinking about this in terms of like Tumblr now, which like Tumblr now is not, Tumblr was was an important third space for me, you know, in the early 2000s, and I think it was for a lot of people. And even Tumblr now is still a third space for certain people. Um, even though it's kind of like people think of Tumblr as a bit passe and like, oh, it's not like as cool or whatever anymore. It's still got this sort of, um, for the people who are on there, it's still a community. And it's it's even better when like they've stopped really releasing updates for Tumblr. Like they haven't they haven't updated the site in years. They started doing some updates in the last couple months and it's really weird because they haven't updated in like five years. I know. Um, it's like watching like a very large sleeping um, mythological creature like shiver in its sleep. Like, are you okay? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Because I love Tumblr because I can cultivate so effectively what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And I keep seeing people talking about how I love Tumblr so much because no one's here. Yeah. <laughs> but you're saying this to some people. Yes. And people are like, yes, I know. No one is here. It's great except for but, us. But that's like saying, oh, I love our like, you know, corner under the stairwell. Yeah. Which no one says out loud, but Which it's an no important one says place. Out loud, but it's an important place. And, you know, and I think for, I think for a lot of teens, TikTok as being that space in quarantine or Snapchat as being that space in quarantine or Fortnite or Minecraft or these kinds of, you know, and a lot of adults don't even, like, there's a bit of a sort of voyeurism in how adults look at TikTok at the moment. We're like, oh, what are the teens doing? What are, what are the kids up to? I feel so uncomfortable with TikTok. Like, um, I have a lot of friends that span a large age range. Like I have mm-hmm. a friend named Gail who's in her 50s and she is the only person who calls me on my phone and the only person <laughs> who I will answer my phone for and not have to worry. Mm-hmm. But I also have a friend, Emma, who's 22 and I feel like it should be illegal for me to be her friend. <laughs> um, but she'll send me TikToks and I'm like, Emma, why are you sending me this stuff? And she'll mention like Snapchat. I was like, I'm 31 years old. I don't have a Snapchat. I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> and like, I think there's a certain amount of like, like there's a certain amount of like, like oh, corporations making their TikTok because they want to advertise to the youths or whatever. And like when the advertisers get hold of a social network, it's less fun. Oh um, yeah. It's like who let the parents hear? Right. Uh, like who let the parents get Facebook and like now we've abandoned Facebook to the parents and it's fine. Um, <laughs> but like there's a certain sense in which I don't I don't want to get in like infringe on the fun of the kids on TikTok. Like let them have their fun. Let them do their memes about like the history papers they're annoyed with having to write. Like I don't I don't need to infringe on that. I don't not everything needs to be for me. No. Uh, and I do I do watch TikToks when they get reposted on other social networks, but I've kind of been like I don't know like it, it does feel weird and I think it's okay that it feels weird because I'm not going and hanging out with teenagers even when we could hang out with real people I'm not going and hanging out with teenagers in like the playground at the local high school because no. that would be really creepy of me that would be a bit creepy <laughs> have you seen author Alicia Rye on TikTok oh I have not I read her books though she's really good at it 
oh, maybe I should she get just And I've asked her about it because she's in her 30s. And I'm like, how are you fluent? And she's like, I don't know, but I'm really, <laughs> I really get this. I'm really enjoying it. This is so much fun. And I'm like, you you go with your multi-generational linguistic talent because I don't speak that language at all. I mean, yeah, like maybe because the I, I had TikTok for a while and then I deleted it because there were privacy issues and maybe I should get it mm-hmm. again. So I, because it would probably help me, like the, the algorithm is quite good uh, at helping you find things. So maybe it wouldn't show me teenagers at all and it would show me people like Alicia Rye, which would be fine. And I would not feel like a creeper. But I, I definitely more rely on I only care about a TikTok once it shows up on my Twitter feed. Like, just put it on there and once I'll see it. Lipped with surly bonds. Yeah, like, I felt like an old person on Tumblr because I was a few years older than the average user on Tumblr in the 2010s. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing that the thing that gets me, uh, that also gets me is reading uh, books that try to represent like text messages and do a bad job at it. Oh God, thank you. Formatting oh. text messages in a book is so hard and it's so awful when it's just jarringly bad. I don't know. People text differently. Like yeah. you can obviously spot a bad text replication, but I text differently than my brother texts. Well, that's one of the things that, that irks me in a book is sometimes they like, especially in a book that has a lot of text, they'll like decide on one style for all the text and then all of the characters will text the same way with like no capitals. And you're like, no, some of these people probably use capitals, just that not yes. all of them do. Yeah, like and- Emma doesn't use caps, but I use full punctuation and grammar every time. Yeah, like people have different sorts of styles. Like one of the ones that got me, um, and this was from um, Hank Green's book, uh, An Unremarkable Thing. Is that what it's called? A Beautiful Thing? Unremarkable. Um, I think you're right. Unremarkable Thing. Um, and it's it's a really interesting book because you can tell that Hank Green has this very intimate understanding of what it's like to become famous because of the internet, um, you know, justifiably. But he's also like a, I don't know, in his... 40s writing trying to write from the perspective of like a 22 year old uh and there's this one point where he has the character and i don't know if this is like him or the copy editor whatever has the character text omg but in all caps and i'm just like no i I can't do this you're not 22 in like the late 2010s and writing omg in all caps unless you're shouting or doing it emphatically or you have this like deliberate style you are writing omg in lowercase yeah Mm -hmm. it's lowercase now that's that's just what what this age is doing and I don't know if this was like the author originally had one thing and then a copy editor was like, but it's an acronym. It shouldn't be in all caps. Like I, I had a lot of like interesting discussions <laughs> with the copy editing process for Because Internet because I was trying to create something that people could cite when they were talking to their copy editors. Uh, other authors could cite when they were talking to their copy editors about why they needed to put stuff in lowercase. Oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, no big. <laughs> It's easy to change a copy editor's mind, sure. Look, if you give them a whole book, copy editors like books. That's (laughs) true. You're not wrong. (laughs) I couldn't write a blog post to do it, but I feel like if you give them a whole book, like this was published by a real publisher and everything, uh, author Gretchen McCulloch says. (laughs) Um, And I have had people say I was able to use this to convince my copy editor, blah, 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 because... I, and I, I said, you know, we're, we are going to lowercase social acronyms in this book. So it's okay to keep for the right is it, like, it's okay to keep NASA capitalized because that's a proper name. Proper names get capitalized. So it as an acronym can stay capitalized. But if it's a, 
uh, if it's a social acronym where it's an acronym for a common phrase rather than for like an organization or a, you know, uh, like some sort of body <laughs> um, or technical term, if it's a if it's an acronym for a common social phrase, uh, social acronyms are getting lowercase unless they're emphatic for for shouting. Um, and I spelled this out explicitly in the book so that if it gets to any translations, that'll get preserved. Uh, and I also did that because uh, the I wanted the copy editor not to correct that because I wanted to make it very explicit in the text and also to give other people, especially like YA authors, mm-hmm. <laughs> a thing that they could cite to push back against an editor who's saying, but it's an acronym should be capitalized and be like, no, 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 look, it's no. a social acronym. Here's this, uh, you know, here, here's this like external source to validate the thing I wanted to do already. <laughs> My favorite, like, texting nuances that I think is fascinating is the use of, like, punctuation. Like, the dreaded period at the end of a one-word answer. Like, the <laughs> the feeling that that conveys. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, period. Okay, period. <laughs> okay, but also, fuck you. <laughs> Fine, period. <laughs> Yeah, sounds good. Period. Does yeah. it really sound good? I I don't think I think I'm in trouble now. Well, and so it's interesting because people uh, you know, I could do we could do a whole episode about the period. Um, but the the kind of nutshell version is people get very angsty when they're told that the period that they have thought of for their whole lives as sort of emotionally neutral can have this additional interpretation. But you know, I I wrote an entire book that uses periods like almost in every sentence, like in almost every sentence, except when there's like a question mark uh, or maybe an exclamation mark occasionally. Like I, I wrote a whole book using periods and it's not passive aggressive. Um, but the, the thing that's interesting about them is when they're used. Uh, so if you're sending someone even a multi-sentence text message, you can put periods between the sentences in a multi-sentence text message and that's fine. Um, but when you're sending someone a short phrase, right. uh, a period often indicates a falling intonation. Um, and that can work okay if you say, like, wow, that sucks, period. That that period is kind of reinforcing or like, I'm so sorry, period. Like, it can reinforce the sort of deepening tone of voice and also sort of emotional heaviness. And yeah. the challenge comes when you have a message that's positive and a period that's adding that sort of additional weight or, uh, you know, falling intonation. And then you get a sort of clash where sounds good would ordinarily be kind of flat or rising, but sounds good with the period is like, oh no, there's a tension there. So it's not that it's always passive aggressive. It's that there is, there are certain circumstances in which it kind of clashes with the uh, emotional balance of the message. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) It's in some senses, it's kind of like the inverse lull. So if you put a period with a positive message, it makes it sort of passive aggressive. But if you put it with a negative message, it just sort of reinforces the negativity. If you put lol, LOL, with a negative message, it makes it uh, sort of a sarcastic or humorous or teasing. Like if you say, mm-hmm. I hate you, lol, that doesn't mean I hate you and I'm laughing about it. Right. That means I'm joking about hating you. Um, but if you put lol with a positive message, um, it undermines the positive message. So if you say, I love you, lol, that is not as sincere. No, that is not. No. <laughs> that is really not sincere. Will you marry me, lol. <laughs> right. Like, oh, like some, some things you want to have happen with a straight face, even though they're very positive. Uh, or even if you say someone like, good morning, lol. That means yeah. like, 
it's two in the afternoon and you're just rolling out of bed. Good morning, lol. Yeah. Or good morning. What what time is it? What day is it? What year is it anymore? We don't even know. Right, exactly. So it's, you know, it's not that you, it's not that you can't say good morning, lol. It's that the context in which you'd say it is not as sort of, it it has some sort of a subtext to it. Right. What books are you reading that you want to tell people about? Um, So one book that I'm really enjoying right now is uh, a new translation of Beowulf by Maria Davina Headley. Um, And the really cool thing about this, uh, I know, I know it's really not category romance, but (laughs) um, it is uh, what she does is she takes the, the female characters a lot more seriously uh, in Beowulf. And she also sort of illuminates how bro-y it is. Yes. Um, and so like the first word of Beowulf, which is sort of one of the, the ones that gets thrown about in translation a lot is what, which can get translated as, you know, low or hark or listen or these kinds of things. Um, there's a translation from 1999 by uh, Seamus Haney that translates it as so, which again, I think is, is kind of an interesting storytelling uh, thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Headley translates it as bro. <laughs> I've seen this on Disgust on Tumblr and on Twitter, oh and it is fascinating. God. It's amazing. Um, and I, so I, I came across it in the like New Yorker article reviewing this, and I was like, I need to purchase this immediately. Uh, and I've actually been reading the whole thing out loud. Um, oh, awesome! Uh, as as part of my, you know, one of my online book clubs, I've just been been reading it out loud over the course of like a week or two, uh, and it reads aloud incredibly beautifully. The writing really flows as a reading aloud text. There are parts that kind of remind you of Hamilton. There are parts that kind of remind you of like, this is like a rap battle between these two characters, which is really sort of that. That's where oral literature exists in present day English. Like it exists in the domain of rap battles and, you know, Hamilton musicals and this type of stuff. It doesn't exist in like trying to perfectly reproduce like old English, you know, half lines and, and stuff like this. Uh, and yeah, it just, she does such a good job at it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm really pleased. Uh, it's it's been so worth it, and it's it's got sort of an interesting mix of like old older style stuff and you know more social media ish slang. Uh, so, so it's basically your catnip. Yeah, it's it's doing a lot of really interesting things, and I got to go I to a talk you know online talk between with her and Emily Wilson who translated the Odyssey a couple years ago. Uh, who also did a really cool line. Oh, she also has this really interesting bit. In Beowulf, where she's talking about, um, so Beowulf's mother, um, who in many re- representations is represented as like a monster or a hag or something. And there's actually nothing in the text to say that she is. That's just a thing that like centuries of male translators have been bringing to the text with their own preconceptions that, of course, a woman can't be like a warrior or wield weapons unless she's a hag. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting that, that Headley brings up is that there's this word fingram. Um, in the, the Old English context, which is sometimes translated as finger and sometimes translated as claws. Um, and Headley's like, look, but Beowulf, but uh, Grendel's mother, sorry, not Beowulf's mother, Grendel's mother is represented as using a knife. And as anybody who's had a long fingernails manicure can tell you, using a knife is practically impossible when you have long fingernails. Therefore, she can't have claws. Oh, yes. Of course. I, I, it's just kind of like the experimental archaeology or whatever, the experimental aspect of this, which if you've never had long fingernails, you don't think about this and you're like, oh, of course she can have claws because how could she, uh, you know, like she's this, this, this 
uh, this woman who's who's having a you know battling this warrior, so she must be a monster. But like she she can't have claws; she physically can't because how else should she wield her knife? Thank you so much for doing this interview, and thank you so much for because internet. We had the best time like reading it and texting each other and talking about it, especially because as Amanda pointed out, we come from different parts of internet history. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you enjoyed it, and it was. <laughs> You know, it was really fun to see it show up on Smart Bitches, which I definitely had not anticipated. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Gretchen McCullough for hanging out with us. We had the best time. And if you would like to find out more about this book or any of the other ones we mentioned, I will have links to all of them in the show notes at smartbitches-ebooks.com slash podcast. And I will also have links where you can find Gretchen, her work, her writing, and her podcast, which is super cool and definitely worth checking out if you like language nerdery like I do. Thank you again to the Patreon community for being wonderful and helping me develop questions and guest ideas. If you would like to join the Patreon community, it would be wonderful. Have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. As always, I end with a bad joke. This one comes from C. Howard, who is awesome. And it's a silly joke, which is my favorite kind. Are you ready? All right. Take cover. Warn your family members. Bad joke incoming. What do you call a sad strawberry? What do you call a sad strawberry? A blueberry. (laughs) It's so silly. It's related to my other favorite terrible joke, which makes me laugh every time I think of it. What's red and smells like blue paint? Red paint. (laughs) What do you call a sad strawberry? A blueberry. Okay, sure. (laughs) On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.